My name is Patton. I am the student pastor here at Judson and excited to share the word with you today. Um, Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 verse 16 is where we're going to start. And something really interesting happened leading up to today's passage. We've been in... in Luke for the last four weeks. Pastor Jeff has been preaching in that kind of section by section. And today we come to this section in Luke chapter four, verse 16. Interestingly enough, on New Year's, I preached this passage. Isn't that kind of random how it worked out that way? We've kind of been going through it. I've been on the schedule to preach and here we are coming to a passage that I preached just a few months ago. So what I did, I just printed it out and we're gonna do it again. Is that all right? No, not really. We're not doing that. It actually worked out really well because when I preached this passage earlier on this year, there was only one section of it that we really looked into and so today we really get to finish it. We, we get to look at the whole section. And so I'm excited about that. What I'm gonna do is uh, first read just the first part, the part that we did on New Year's Day. And I wanna give a little recap of that and set the stage uh, for what we'll be looking at today. So we'll be in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 16. It says this, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, so his home. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So let's set the scene here. Here is Jesus coming into his hometown. Uh, We've seen over the past few weeks that uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He's been preaching in Galilee and some amazing things are being said about him. So he comes to his hometown on the Sabbath day and gets the opportunity to go to his, you could say home church and preach. So he goes in he stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he sits down after reading that passage and says, today this has been fulfilled. These are bold words. It's like a mic drop moment, you could say. It's something incredible to be said. They would have been very familiar with the prophet Isaiah and what he had to say about the coming Messiah. And Jesus is standing in front of them and saying, I am that Messiah. When we looked at this passage in January, we saw that Jesus didn't only say these things, but we discover on this end of the New Testament that he fulfilled all of these things, both physically and spiritually. He preached good news to the poor. He proclaimed release to the captives, recovered sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed. 
So Jesus says he came for the poor, the captive, the blind, and oppressed. And what we must realize in this is that we are those people, spiritually speaking. Without Jesus, we are poor, we are blind, we are captive, and we are oppressed. We are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, and we need him. The question I have for you today as we continue on is a simple question, but I really want it to sink in as we look at the rest of this passage. It's this, do I live like I need Jesus? I'll ask it one more time. Do I live like I need Jesus? We're gonna continue on starting in verse 22. And this is, where it start, this is where it starts a new sermon. That was the old one. We're moving on to the new sermon today, the, the rest of this passage. And it says this in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself so that all we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. He also said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of a hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray as we jump into this. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that you have given us. Lord, help us realize anew today our need for you. Lord, help us not be too familiar with you and church and everything that we do. Lord, let us be desperate for you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Let it guide us today. So as we look at this passage, we see that the, the people of Nazareth were impressed, but not that impressed, right? So they were pretty impressed. We see starting in verse 22 that they thought his words were eloquent. They thought they were nice. They thought it was pleasing to their ears. They liked what he had to say. So they were impressed, but yet not that 
impressed, just a little bit impressed. Because you see, it changes from a positive response to the end of that, we see a little bit of a negative response. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Now that seems pretty simple, but when we look back at the languages, we see before that there was positive and this leads into a negative response. So they were impressed, but still a little skeptical. Just imagine their thoughts. He spoke so well, but isn't that the carpenter boy? He spoke so well, but didn't he get lost in Jerusalem one time, right? You remember that story? He spoke, speaks so well, but that's just Joseph's son. We know him. You see, they were familiar with Jesus. Following this, we see Jesus responds to them. Jesus knew their thoughts and he challenges them with his response. And I want his response to challenge us today. The first thing we learned from Jesus' response was that the people of Nazareth were too familiar with him. Now, this is an interesting thing to be too familiar with someone. That seems actually fairly positive in some ways, right? We should be familiar with Jesus. We should be familiar with who he is and what he has done. But what happens when sometimes when we become too familiar, a few things happen. Think about it this way. Siblings that are really familiar with each other, they can treat each other like dirt, right? I mean, they can be mean and get at each other and pick at each other. Spouses, right? They're familiar, live together. The, the little things they do can annoy one another, right? Parents to their children, they can be so familiar. They can be negative towards their children for certain things that other kids wouldn't bother them, right? So familiar with the situation. Children, on the other hand, they can be so familiar with their parents that they just, they're disrespectful. They don't listen. I know that to be true, right? So familiarity is good, but it can breed a few things that are unhealthy. When I talk about becoming too familiar with Jesus today, it means that we know a lot about Jesus, but we don't value him or let him guide our life. Jesus's words help us to understand what can happen when we become too familiar with him. And I wanna point out three things today that familiarity breeds. The first thing, familiarity breeds selfishness and entitlement. Jesus' words imply to us that the people of Nazareth wanted him to come and do miracles in their town. They thought they were entitled to the right of having Jesus to themselves and do the things that he was doing in other places in their city. You're from our town. You should do the things for us because we are your people kind of thing. They, were in, they felt like they were entitled to it. And when Jesus didn't do it, they got frustrated. They got angry. So familiarity breeds selfishness. And the question I have for you here is, do you have a selfish faith? Do you think you're entitled to certain things because you're a Christian or because you grew up in church? This can look like not wanting other groups of people in, into your circle of friends, not wanting different people around, looking down on other churches or other people who go to other churches. 
thinking you deserve things to be a certain way because that's the way you're used to or the way you want them to be. This is a big one. Thinking worship music should be about your preference. (laughs) I like there was a little snicker there. That's good. See, here's the thing. Worship is not about you. Church is not about you. It's about bringing glory to Jesus, to the God who created us, who loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. When we come in here and sing songs, it's not to tickle our ears and make us feel good. It's to bring glory to God. That's why we sing. That's what church is about. Lord, may it be in our church that we are desperate for bringing glory to God. Help us put our preferences aside for the sake of his kingdom. May this church be a place focused on bringing praise and glory to Jesus and bringing other people to him rather than just a place that makes us feel comfortable and good. The second thing we see is that familiarity breeds apathy. The people of Nazareth wanted Jesus to come in, do something for them, but they just wanted to keep going on about their business in a regular way. And Jesus doesn't call us to get comfortable just going through the motions of religiosity that we go through every week. Jesus calls us to join him in his work. He calls us to make disciples. I asked our students, our teenagers in this church this just a couple of weeks ago, Have you shared Jesus with someone recently? Are you discipling someone right now? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Are you going therefore and making disciples? Are you taking steps towards Jesus or are you just happy with the status quo? Don't let your familiarity with Jesus lead to an apathetic faith. So that's the second thing. The third thing we see is that familiarity breeds contempt. The word contempt means the feeling that someone is beneath consideration. Even though they thought Jesus had some good words to say, they didn't feel like Jesus was worth their consideration. Instead of accepting him, they kicked him out of the church. Instead of letting his words change their lives, they pushed him away Instead of following him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Listen to this right here. They went to church that day, heard from Jesus Christ himself, and didn't let his words change their life at all. Do you ever come into this place, hear from God's word, and leave without taking his words into consideration in your life? Do you live with no consideration of Jesus? Maybe you say you trust him, but your life shows maybe that you hold him in contempt. When we become too familiar with Jesus, he ends up having no bearing on our life. 
On April 10th, 1912, the Titanic set sail in Southampton, England, headed for New York City with 2,224 people on it. I think many of you know that story, right? Maybe seen the movie. It was considered to be an unsinkable ship. It claimed that the, that the captain once said, even God could not sink this ship. They were confident, they were comfortable with this ship. The ship was traveling too fast through the iceberg fields. They dismissed iceberg warnings leading to the fatal sinking, which 1,500 people lost their lives in. Their overconfidence, maybe familiarity, led to catastrophic results. They didn't take the situation seriously because they were comfortable. When we become too comfortable, too familiar with Jesus, it leads to selfishness. It leads to apathy. It leads to a life in which Jesus has no actual bearing on our decisions. We can come into this place, go through the motions every week and feel good about it, but not actually let Jesus change our lives. Are you too familiar with Jesus? Now, as we move to the second part of Jesus's response, we see there's something that can keep us from becoming too familiar with Jesus. And it's simply desperation for him. The people of Nazareth didn't accept him because they didn't think they needed him. They thought they were just fine without him. And Jesus shares about two people who accepted him. In both of these stories, we see a picture of people who are desperate for Jesus. So we see two stories. I wanna give you just a little recap of both of these stories that, that Jesus shares in his response to the people of Nazareth. The first is Elijah and the widow. He shares about them. There was a famine in the land and God had taken care of the prophet Elijah through a raven who brought him food. God sends Elijah to Zarephath to a widow to provide for him. In Jesus's words in Luke, he points to the significance here that the widow was not an Israelite. She was from Syria. She was outside of the people of Israel. When Elijah arrives, he finds the widow in a desperate situation. And Elijah says, please bring me some food and some bread. And the response that she has is heartbreaking. Listen to this. As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I'm gathering a couple sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. You hear that? She had nothing. She was in a desperate situation. All she had was a little bit left and she was preparing for her and her son's death. Can you imagine being in that situation, that desperate of a situation, having nothing, just a little bit left? 
Then Elijah responds and says this, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. She wasn't selfish. She wasn't apathetic. She didn't hold Elijah in contempt. She was desperate and God used her in an incredible way. Just as Elijah said, she went and made food and had plenty. The second story we see is Elijah and a man named Naaman. And I love this story. Naaman uh, was a high up commander in an army. He was well to do, uh, looked after, like looked on highly, but he had a skin disease. He was hurting, he was in pain. He was told by an Israelite girl to go and visit the prophet Elisha. I'm probably gonna mix up Elijah and Elisha here. So just stick with me if I do, they're so close. But Elisha, I'm, I'm on it right now. And he will cure you. He went, brought gold, silver, and clothes to give Elisha as payment. When he got to Elisha, he arrived and Elisha said, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Now Naaman's initial response was that of a prideful response. He thought that was a little ridiculous. He thought the rivers in Syria were better. Why would I go, go into the Jordan seven times and wash myself? I'm almost like, no way, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. Let's go home, right? But some of his servants uh, plead with him, say, hey, you should at least try it. That's simple. That's not hard. At least try it. Put your pride aside, humble yourself and just give it a try and see what happens. And you know what he does? He goes, washes in the Jordan seven times and he is healed. Out of his desperation, he overcomes his pride and trusts in God for this healing. So as we talk about this idea of being desperate for Jesus rather than being too familiar with Jesus, I wanna point out three things that desperation breeds. The first is desperation breeds humility. First with the widow, the widow is honest about her situation. She has nothing. She's not trying to cover it up. She's not trying to be prideful. She has literally nothing to give. She is at the end of herself. Naaman initially responds pridefully. He feels like the instructions are ridiculous, yet through insight from others, he humbles himself. His desperation for healing leads him to humility. So desperation breeds humility. The second thing we see, desperation breeds obedience. The widow really had no other option but to give it a try. 
Either go make food and die or try what Elijah said. She and her son needed food. They were suffering. Just imagine being in this situation. I mean, you could, say, you could think, oh, this is all I have. I'm not gonna give any of it to anyone. This is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold on to it myself. But in her desperation, this was all she had. She gave it a shot. So I'm gonna try out of this. It leads to her obedience and the Lord blesses her in this. Her desperation leads to her obedience For Naaman, in the same way, he was humble. Naaman's desperation for healing is what leads him to actually do what Elisha said. He knew he needed it. And so he did it. The third thing we see is that desperation breeds respect. I love what happened with Naaman. Naaman... Uh, was to give Elisha, wanted to give Elisha a big payment after his healing. He wanted to give him gold, silver, clothes, all of the things, and Elisha would not take it. And Naaman's response is incredible. In 2 Kings chapter 5, it says this, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. Do you hear that? His life was changed. He was desperate for healing. He went to God, found healing, and out of that healing, he said, I'm only going to worship God because he is the one who transforms lives. This is an amazing picture of the gospel of what we talked about earlier. Jesus said he came for the poor, for the captive, for the oppressed. We are that. Our sin holds us captive. Without God, we are poor. We need him. We need his salvation. Our sin causes separation from God. It causes eternal death apart from God and hell. But with Jesus, we find eternal life. We find salvation. We can overcome our sin. We need him. Do you live like you are desperate for him? You know, in 1912 was the sinking of the Titanic, but something else interesting happened in 1912. Lottie Moon, the famous missionary, died that year, December 24th, 1912, after 40 years of missionary work in China. She was desperate for Jesus. She was desperate to see Jesus move. You see, Lottie Moon, she grew up somewhat wealthy. She had everything she needed and she left all of it to go across the world to share the love of Jesus with a group of people she didn't even know. Not only that, she stayed there for 40 years, gave her life to the work there, but then her work continues on even today. Every year in the Southern Baptist Convention, we have the Lottie Moon offering, which goes to international missions. She was desperate for Jesus and it changed people's lives. 
It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. She didn't stay familiar. She stayed desperate for Jesus. So let's compare these two things we've talked about, familiarity and desperation. Familiarity breeds selfishness and entitlement. Desperation breeds humility. Familiarity breeds apathy. Desperation breeds obedience. Familiarity breeds contempt. Desperation breeds respect. Are you desperate for Jesus? You know, when we use that word, desperate, it almost feels negative. None of us want to feel like we're desperate for anything, right? We want to think we have it all together. We want to be in control of everything. But desperation does not mean we don't have confidence. Because we can be desperate for Jesus to see him move and to see him work and have confidence in him at the same time. Think about it with March Madness. Anyone watching any basketball this week, some of you, maybe a few. I mean, I love some March Madness and I love to see an upset. I love to see an underdog win, especially I love to see a short team win. So there, there was this, t- I mean, come on, I, I would love to be a center in the NBA, but it just didn't work out for me height-wise, you know. But there was this team this week, this week on Friday, Fairly Dickinson, wherever that is, a 16 seed beat the number one seed, Purdue. They are the shortest team in the league. I think that I saw their average height was like 6'1". Their tallest guy, that's tall for me, but not for, not for basketball, 6'1". Their tallest guy was 6'7". Playing Purdue, their tallest guy is 7'4". The second tallest team in the league. And they go out there. You think they're desperate for a win, right? But what's interesting, as I was kind of reading about what took place, the coach, he said, you know, when I was watching film for this team, I really felt like we could win. There was some confidence in there, right? And so he instilled some of this confidence into his team and they went out there and played with confidence, but they were also desperate because they didn't have everything, right? They didn't have everything the other team had. They didn't have all the money the other team had. They didn't have the height the other team had, the so-called talent the other team had, right? They didn't have all of those things. They were desperate for a win, so they went out there and got after it, and they played with confidence. And in the same way, we can be desperate for Jesus, desperate for him to come into our life and have bearing on our life and direct our lives. And we can have confidence that he is going to do what he said he is going to do because he is good. He came to proclaim release to the captives, to allow the blind to see, to give hope to the poor. That's the God we have. We should be desperate for him. There's one last passage in scripture scripture that I want us to look at real quickly. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through 22. And this is a story of a guy named the rich young ruler. And I thought this fit 
really well into what we're talking about today. In Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, it says this, just then someone came up and asked him, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep his commandments. Which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still, still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. You see, the rich young ruler comes in and what we discover here is he was religious in some way. He was moral in some ways, at least to the point, maybe a little bit in pride. He says, yeah, I've kept all of those commandments. I've done, I've done well. I'm a good person. Yet he wasn't willing to give anything up for Jesus. Jesus said, hey, give up all of these things. You don't need these things more than all of these possessions that you have. Give those up and follow me. That's where you will find life. And he went away sad because he didn't wanna give them up. We can maybe imply into this that he thought he needed his possessions, his stuff, his status more than he needed Jesus. I wanna come back to this question I asked earlier. Do you live like you need Jesus? Do you live your everyday life, not just Sunday or Wednesdays, do you live your everyday life like you need Jesus? Have you become too familiar with him or are you desperate for him? Are you desperate to see God work in your life? Are you desperate to see God work in the lives of others? Do you wake up each day thinking about all you need to do to build yourself up and to build your own life up and to build your own kingdom? Or do you wake up every day saying, Lord, I need you to come into my life because I want to build your kingdom up. I want to bring you glory. I want to bring you praise with my life because that's more important than anything else. May every day be a day where we wake up and say, Jesus, today I need you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that you have given us today. 
Lord, may we be a church, may we be a people that are desperate for you. Lord, we know when we're desperate that you will show up and move. Lord, we wanna see revival in our nation. We wanna see revival in our church. Lord, I wanna see revival in our teenagers in this church. Lord, draw them closer to you. Draw this church closer to you in desperation. Let us not be too familiar with just the going through the motions of church life, but let us be desperate to see you work and move. Lord, we thank you for your love that you have shown us. Let that be our guide. Let that be our strength. Let that help us realize how much we need you. It's your name we pray, amen.